0: Hey, for one last time in the Gospel of Mark, I get to say, welcome to the podcast, More Than Bread. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Those words were spoken by the one who called himself the bread of life, the one who John called the word. If we go to scripture and we don't find Jesus, man, we're missing everything. So welcome to episode number 104, our last look at the Gospel of Mark. You made it. I made it. We made it. Lord willing, we may be back again, but, but for now, for this episode, I, I simply want to do a little bit of a review of where we've been and what we've heard and what we've learned, and, and at least for me, what I've leaned into during this series on the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, going all the way back to the beginning, these words are written, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Way back at the beginning of our look at Mark's gospel, we started with a question that defines each of our lives. Jesus, are you the one? I mean, think about it. Every time you write a check, you do it. Whenever you turn on the computer, Microsoft implicitly acknowledges it. When you turn on your big screen TV, the home screen reminds you that whatever you may believe about him, the birth of Jesus was such an important event that it split history into two parts. Everything that has ever happened on this planet falls into two categories before Christ and after Christ. This self educated part-time carpenter raised in an obscure village in an obscure country spent spent only three years in the public eye speaking to and impacting in person fewer people than than a football coach does on a single fall afternoon. And yet he changed the world more than any other person. You cannot get away from him. He holds the allegiance of a third of the living people in the world. Even the fact that his name has become a curse word shows its influence. When's the last time you heard Muhammad's name yelled in anger when the putt for par was missed? More than 1,900 years after Christ's Said H.G. Wells, a historian like myself who doesn't, he didn't even call himself a Christian, finds the, the picture centering, centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. He said the historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start people thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? I mean, by this test alone, Jesus stands first. And yet I am irresistibly drawn to Jesus, not because he stands first in the mind of historians. It's not that he changed and divided history that compels me. I'm drawn to Jesus because he he positions himself as the dividing point of my life. I mean, according to Jesus, what I think about him and and how I respond to him will determine the quantity and quality of my life. So I'm compelled to ask the question, Jesus, are you the one? And the gospel of Mark is full. It's full of people who said, yes, Jesus is the one, like the 12 disciples. I mean, we're, remember when they were out on the boat and a storm came, this wicked, almost demonic storm, seasoned fishermen, experienced sailors were, were so afraid, waves higher than a house tossed them back and forth, wind drove the rain horizontal, it was a tie yourself to the masts and kiss your boat goodbye kind of storm, <laughs> until Jesus woke up from his nap and spoke to the storm, be still, be still. Who is this man, Peter wondered, even the wind and the waves obey him. Or how about the time he healed the crippled man, let down through the hole in the ceiling? People that day. Or, or the time when he he took a sack lunch and fed enough people to fill a stadium. There were some people there those days who said, you, you're the one, the, the one we've waited for, the The man who had so many demons that his nickname was Legion. His life had been taken from him. He he became Jesus' first missionary. He knew that Jesus was the one. Or or how about the day when he hung on a cross? We've just been talking about that. He called upon God to forgive the ones who put him there. And when he died, the world got dark and the earth shook. And there was a Roman soldier there that day. So I I think he was the one. (laughs) About a few days later when he rose from the dead and those two women, Mary and Mary, don't you think... Even though they were frightened, don't you think they knew? And then there was Mark, the writer of this gospel that we've immersed ourselves in. He he was a bit more like us. He grew up in the early days of our movement, but we have zero indication that he spent any time in the physical presence of Jesus. He didn't hear Jesus' voice or, or watch him personally do his miracles, but he answered that question with a yes through the conviction of God's Spirit in his heart and in his mind, and, and on the basis of what others had said about Jesus. As, as Mark rubbed shoulders with those early leaders of the church, he developed a, a settled conviction in his heart that Jesus was the one, and, and so he starts his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news about Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. There was no Mary Christ or Joseph Christ. His brother's name was not James Christ. The The word Christ, is a it, it's a title. It means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Kings were anointed. And in the Hebrew faith, the anointed one was this king, this great king who had come from the line of David, a king who had been anticipated for thousands of years, the Messiah. And, and then let me dig in a, a little bit on that word gospel. I mean, that's a... That's a good, solid Christian kind of word, right? What's the gospel? The word literally means good news, but but what is the good news? If I asked you, what is the good news? If you grew up in the church, you might say, well, the good news is our sins are forgiven. That's good news, but but it's not the good news. You might say, well, we get to go to heaven. I agree, that's good news, but but is it the good news? In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Mark writes that after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus had one consistent message. It was the good news of the kingdom of God. That word gospel was a a significant religious word in Jesus' day. When when Jews heard the word gospel, verses in the Old Testament would come to mind, like Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim salvation, who say to Israel, your God reigns. And and see, wrapped up in this word gospel is the good news that God reigns. The good news that God reigns. Tom Wright suggests that the word gospel or good news was a well-known technical term in Jesus' day, referring to the announcement of a great military victory or the birth of or ascension of a new ruler who is going to bring strength to the Roman world. An inscription found on a building in the year 9 BC, written about Caesar Augustus, stated, Providence has filled Augustus with zeal and virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men and has sent him, has sent Augustus as a savior for us and those who come after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news, (laughs) See, in the Roman world, the good news was that Caesar is Lord. Caesar reigns. Do you understand how incredibly radical and untamed it was for Jesus to come and say, I have good news. There's a new gospel. There's a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and Jesus reigns. Jesus is Lord. When Mark opens his book by stating the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's making a profound claim that the good news is that the kingdom of God is here and now life with Jesus lived through resurrection power has now become available to ordinary people like you and me listening to a a podcast like this. See, here's what I believe. I believe that every heart longing you have or think you have. The, the aches that rise when we see something or someone that we desire. When we dream of more success or wake up hoping we're somehow more attractive. When you drive by a bigger house and say, I wish. When we say what we say or do what we do and then look around hoping someone noticed and perhaps will even applaud. What your soul desires is for Jesus and this kingdom of God to come down here now. When we come to the recognition that this is what we were made for, that Jesus is who we were made for, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the reign of Jesus in our lives. It's all about Jesus. I I love how Max Lucado um, describes Jesus. He he writes, forget MVP, he's the entire league, The, the head of the parade hardly. No one else shares the street who comes close humanity's best and brightest fade like dime store rubies next to him. Dismiss him? We can't. Resist him? Equally difficult. A Savior found by millions to be irresistible. The reward of Christianity is Christ. Do you journey to the Grand Canyon for a souvenir t-shirt? No, the reward of the Grand Canyon is the Grand Canyon, the wide-eyed realization that you are part of something ancient, splendid, powerful, and greater than you. The reward of Christianity is Christ. Not money in the bank or a healthy body or a better self-image. The Fort Knox of faith is is Christ walking with him and pondering him and exploring him. The heart-stopping realization that in him, in him, you are part of something ancient, endless, unstoppable, and unfathomable. And that he who can dig the Grand Canyon with his pinky thinks that you're worth his death on Roman timber. Christ is the reward of Christianity. I mean, why else would Paul make him his supreme desire? I want to know Christ. Everything else is like garbage compared to knowing Christ. Here's the good news. This crucified and risen, unstoppable and unfathomable Jesus who loves you, this Jesus reigns. And life in and through him, with him, is here and now available for you. This is good news. Let me just kind of hit a couple of themes in in the Gospel of Mark. The the first theme starts with a look at Mark himself. He first traveled with Paul, that first great missionary hero and writer of sacred scripture. But then he messed up. He he quit on Paul, and Paul no longer wanted to partner with Mark. In Acts 15, it says after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him, with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And they there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Here's all I want to say. Mark was living proof that Jesus loves to use ordinary people. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of the most gifted people in the world are, are listening to this podcast, part of the Calvary family, part of your neighborhood. But, but I, I'll tell you what, we're all ordinary. I mean, if, even if you're the smartest person in the room, the most gifted person in the room, if you're honest with yourself, you've had some moments where you were confronted with your non-extraordinary nature. <laughs> I remember all the way back to my first year in college, Bethel in Minnesota. It, it was a difficult year. First year away from home was part of the difficulty, but, but it was also the year that I found out how ordinary I was. See, when I was in high school, I was a proverbial big fish in a small pond. In high school, I thought I was big stuff, extraordinary in just about everything. But then again, I had 28 kids in my graduating class. We played nine-man football. I sang. I was an athlete, all-state debate team, A student. And good-looking, you should have seen me in a leisure suit. <laughs> then I got to Bethel and found out that there were people who were better football players, better students, better singers, better-looking. telling you, my world was based on being extraordinary, and now I was just ordinary. And to be honest, if you're listening to this, and you you were at Chester High School when I was there, I was just ordinary then, too. I wasn't the best of the group then. And that's not even talking about the more important areas of character and heart and attitude. You can be the smartest person in the room have an extremely ordinary heart, have less than ordinary integrity. Mark goes out of his way to highlight the lowlights of the disciples. (laughs) He goes out of his way to show the dark side of leadership. He goes out of his way to reveal the ordinariness of those that God uses to make a difference in the world. You know why? Because my ordinariness is a great backdrop to an extraordinary Jesus. I'll never forget that first year in college, having this meltdown moment with God and sensing God saying to me, you know what, there's only one area in life where you can have a shot at being extraordinary. And that's in your relationship with me. See, Jesus loves to be to use ordinary people. That's part of his message in, in Mark 10, verses 43 through 45, when he said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus loves to use ordinary people who are willing to serve. Almost every study in the gospel of Mark picks out those three verses as the theme of the gospel. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, shares a story from a friend who who works with the down and out. It is that a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she'd been renting out her daughter. Two years old to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. person sharing the story said, I could barely I could barely bear hearing her sordid story. I had no idea what to say to this woman. And at last, I asked her if she'd ever considered going to a church for help. He writes, I'll, I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. And yet people like this flocked to Jesus. The worse they felt about their lives, the more likely they were to seek him out to get a life. Jesus was a refuge for those who needed life. Why did they flock to Jesus? Because he didn't view people in the margins of life as pro- projects. He he loved them and served them as people who would one day leave a mark. Rodney Stark, a professor of sociology at one point, at least, at the University of Washington. I don't know where he is now. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he calculated that Christianity spread in the Roman Empire at the rate of about 40% per decade. And he asked the question, why this phenomenal growth? In the year 40 AD, a few years after Jesus died, there were roughly 5,000 Christians in the world, less than one one hundredth of 1% of the Roman Empire. By 350 AD, there are about 33 million, 56% of the Roman Empire who named the name of Jesus. How did that happen? The Roman Empire was collapsing, but this Jesus movement is exploding. How did this marginalized, persecuted, often uneducated group of people not only survive, but thrive? His conclusion? He writes, a key reason was their willingness to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and for their world. This sacrifice released an explosion of light and heat the world had never known. You know what I think? I think if we do it again, it'll happen again. The last theme I... I want to highlight is just the word immediately. Mark's gospel uses the Greek word euthos, immediately, over 40 times. Most often it's translated as immediately. Sometimes it's translated as right away or at once or without delay. And it gives Mark this kind of ESPN Sports Center feel, if you remember that. Um, and of all the Gospels, Mark includes the least amount of Jesus teaching. He just goes from one event to the next, one miracle to the next, one scene to the next. And this constant flow of activity producing an unstoppable momentum all the way to the cross. But then in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, it says, John was put into prison. You remember this? Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting an end to the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And at once, they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. Let's just talk for a moment about that word immediately or, or at once. What, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean never rest. The word immediately doesn't mean you never take a Sabbath. Sometimes Jesus immediately rested. Sometimes he immediately went to be alone in prayer. The word immediately is not even a distant cousin to the word busy. I think the word immediately has to do with momentum. That's a good gospel of Mark word. There's a momentum to the gospel of Mark, or should I say that Mark reveals that there's a certain momentum to the kingdom of God, there's a certain momentum to the life of Jesus, and it was a momentum that came from responding immediately to the voice of God in his life. Let me say that again. It was a momentum that came from responding immediately to the voice of God in his life, and the quicker we respond to the voice of God, the quicker we receive. We respond, we lean into the Word of God, the conviction of the Spirit. We begin to develop momentum. And I'm telling you, momentum is a powerful thing. We talk about it most in sports, but the principle of momentum affects all of life. It affects our spiritual life. Sometimes the whisper of God, the conviction of the Spirit, calls you to do something to serve someone, to forgive someone, call someone, give to a cause, pray for someone, leave a mark. And that whisper is so clear that you take notice. It's not just in the background. You notice it. You acknowledge it. But then the thought comes, I I I need to think about that some more. Someday I'll do something about that. And you walk away from the moment, but you don't respond. And because you don't respond, you lose momentum. And it's so hard To follow Jesus. It's so hard to leave a mark, to make a difference without momentum. Uh, Let me ask you what is the gap between hearing God and obeying God for you? What, What is the gap between having your heart stirred by something that was even said or read during this podcast and then leaning in, responding to it? The quicker you respond, the more momentum you will develop in your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this study. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for the life of Mark. Thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for the opportunities to listen for the voice of God by the Spirit of God in our lives. Thank you for anything that we've learned over the course of this series. But God also thank you for the opportunities that you give us to lean in and, and and I pray God with all my heart, I pray that myself included that each and every one of us would lean in, that we would respond to your voice, that we would do that that we would obey <laughs> that that we would not just listen to the whisper of God and hear the whisper of God, but we would we would do something we would be not hearers only but doers that we would develop momentum. God, I I thank you for the the way the kingdom grows, not, not only in our world, but in our lives. And I pray for each and every person listening, God, would you grow your kingdom in us? Would you grow your kingdom in us? Would you grow the life of Christ in us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.